The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect official policies or position of the Church of England Pensions Board, any other organisation, employer or their employees. And now, on with the show. Hi there listeners, spring has finally sprung, the sun is shining in Edinburgh and it's time to start talking responsibly. So welcome to this episode four of Talking Responsibly, the Rock and Roller's Guide to Responsible Investment. Joining me as usual is my co-host Adam Matthews. Uh, good afternoon, Adam. How are you today? Afternoon, David. Yeah, very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing all right, mate. Yeah, I'm I'm helped by the. Uh, the blinding sunshine in Edinburgh, and anyone uh, of our listeners that's been to Scotland will know that that can be a rare thing at times. So uh, it's nice. How many times are you on uh, Arthur's seat now, Adam? Um, as of this morning, 235. Okay. So, the, yeah. so for those that don't know, um, Adam moved up to Edinburgh in, uh, in February, February last year, yeah. just before lockdown, um, and is already about 230 times uh, more up Arthur's seat than I have done in the 19 years I've lived here. So bravo for that, Adam, 235. And you're just going to keep on going until... I thought I'd go for a year and see how we go. We've lost a little bit of timber on the way, so we're a little bit uh, smaller than I was when I started. And the views are amazing. Sea otters, see lots of wildlife, and uh, amazing views of Edinburgh. Happy So uh, keeping me sane. Good stuff. Right. Well, I'm going to bring in our uh, guest for the week, a very special guest uh, joining us from the United States of America. Now, the guest we have today is the CEO and president of the Sustainability Sustainability Nonprofit Series, has been since 2003. She has received the Climate Visionary Award from the Earth Day Network, Uh, In 2020, received the Champions of the Earth Award, which is the highest environmental award uh, from the United Nations. And in 2015, following her pivotal work in getting the Paris Agreement over the finishing line, uh, that led Vogue magazine to name her a climate warrior. So, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Mindy Lubber, CEO of Ceres. Mindy, how are you? I'm great. Uh, I love the climate warrior term because we got a big fight on our hands. Uh, But let me say one thing. I rarely hear um, rock and roll and investing in the same term. Uh, And that's how you introduce this podcast. And I couldn't be more excited about it. It sounds much more fun than the usual investment blather. Well, so, uh, these, these panels get a bit boring, don't they, Mindy? You know, it's just people being very, very serious. And we, we like to be less serious because, you know, we, we have fun doing our job. I, I enjoy it. Adam enjoys it. And, and I expect you enjoy it. So uh, I like to put the fun back into fund management. Here we go. Hey, uh, oh, good I'm ready grief. to rock and roll. Ready to rock and roll. So, <laughs> Mindy, before, oh, b- before we start... Um, could you give us an idea who Ceres actually are, please? Sure. Um, 30-year-old NGO, not-for-profit organization. We are an advocacy organization. 
that works with large businesses and investors to integrate sustainability into all that they do. We like to say from the boardroom all the way through to the supply chain. We work with large companies to set goals uh, around sustainability, environment, water, climate, uh, but a broader set of social goals as well. And we work with the companies to set audacious goals and how they have to meet them. And that means training corporate board members all the way through to their smallest suppliers and make sure their small suppliers know how to deal with sustainability. And I'll say, you know, it's a journey. I could think of no company that has nailed it, that is all the way there, but many are trying. We also work with 197 North American investors and then with the collaboration of global investors like your very own Adam Matthews, who is extraordinary. Um, but we work with investors on where they're investing their money, how they use the cloud of ownership, the fact that they own hundreds and thousands of companies, how they advise those companies. And in both cases, we bring investors and companies into the policy debate. The final thing we do is we work to change public policy, price on carbon, limiting auto emissions, uh, and we try to change regulators. And right now with the new administration, we are working to change the way the Federal Reserve Bank and the Securities Exchange Commission look at climate risk and make sure it's seen as a real risk and not one of those cute environmental things. So uh, we try and nail the integrate sustainability into everything capital markets do. I think that's well. Just declaring an interest, our pension funds a member of SERS because of the, the approach that Mindy's just laid out. is it's it's holistic. It's the whole system approach. And I was just yeah. You know, the one thing that um, listeners to this won't won't appreciate is um, we, we're on a Zoom link so we can see each other. But Mindy is also the only person I know that's actually got ten out of ten on Roomrater, um, which is on Twitter. And I saw that um, a few months ago, and I thought I know that person. And uh, normally it's sort of people I have no clue. And but this this and, and they're rating people on television, etc. And they saw Mindy's, and she has a beautiful room that she's currently sat in. Anyway, but the point I just want to pick up with you, Mindy, is just that point about it being a journey. And I just think that's one of the most important points that you sort of that perception that sustainability, we've nailed it, it's there, we've got it, we're, we're doing it. Actually, it's not an end goal, it's a continuum. And I think that to me is part of the ethos very much of, of Sarah's, if I'm right. Look, we, we have got to move the largest players. If we think an oil company is going to change in the next 15 minutes, we will all be very disappointed. Now we can't go at the pace they want. We need to go at a fast pace and a scale, uh, but it is a journey. It is not gonna happen overnight. We need to keep pushing. That's what you and I live to do, Adam. Uh, but we need to be quasi-realistic. If we're too realistic, we won't solve problems like the climate crisis. So we've gotta be audacious, um, but get on that journey sooner rather than later. And it has to be goals driven. It can't be a desire to do what's good. It's gotta be driven by short, medium and long-term goals. Uh, we're in the middle of a series conference and unfortunately it's been virtual, but other than that, it's been great. Uh, and I had the pleasure of interviewing Bernard Looney yesterday, the CEO and chairman of BP. And we talked about how difficult it is to transform one of the largest oil companies in the world to a non-fossil fuel company. Um, <clears throat> but he's built, building in 
metrics and goals for what he has to do. Will he get there? We sure hope he will. Will he get the support of his board? I hope so. Um, but it is a journey. And to imagine it's going to happen in the next month or six months would probably be highly unrealistic. Now, that said, the climate crisis is unrealistic. It's unfortunate. It's unmanageable. It's un everything we can think about. It's un British and un Scottish and un American. Uh, but it is, and it's not reasonable. So while we want to understand the complexities of moving to a non-fossil fuel future, we also at the same time always have to understand we've got to move at a pace and a scale that really isn't very easy, but it is very necessary. So with that in mind, Mindy, uh, I believe that uh, Sari's, uh, uh, along with the rest of the Climate Action 100 Plus Network, came out with some really... Uh, interesting new uh, tools and data this week. So I'm wondering if you could uh, bring us on board with that and let us know what you've been doing. So for those who, of us who are not investor geeks, uh, let me talk to you a tiny bit about what Climate Action 100 Plus is, and then I'll nail it right into the context of this week. Um, investors who own companies, who own stakes in companies, have a right to tell those companies that they have expectations. Expectations that the companies will be managed well, that they'll manage their resources well. They will make smart decisions that allow them to do well profitably and for the investors to make money, which is a big part of what the investment world is about. Um, and what we've seen over the years is many companies simply ignoring this concept of climate risk, that they too as a company have a major risk from climate change. It might be a bank. It might be who they finance. It's not only oil and gas companies. And so Climate Action 100 Plus, though, really came about because investors came together and said, who are the largest emitters and the emitters that are making the biggest difference in our climate? And the, the interesting thing was when we did the early study, we found out that 100 companies, 100 global companies created over 70% of the emissions. And the investors, all of us sat down and said, hey, we can work with those 100 companies. We can move them. We can have an impact. We own those companies and we're going to move them forward. And so we chose 100 companies. We threw in another 65 because of their relevance to the climate crisis. And the interesting thing is we started with a small group of investors, visionary leaders like Adam Matthews, um, but we started with a small group, not knowing how much this would grow, how many investors really would come together to say, we are gonna move the largest emitters. And where are we now? We have 570 global investors with assets totaling $54 trillion. That's trillion with a T. I'm not even sure I could tell you how many zeros are in that trillion, but it's a lot of zeros and it's half of the managed assets in the world. That tells us something. It tells us that A, investors see climate risk as an imperative they have to act on. It shows they want to work together and it shows there's a logic here that with that number of 570 plus investors, we really can prevail on companies one by one by one, negotiating teams, groups, analysis, data, but we could prevail on those companies to change what they do and to change sooner rather than later. So that's the idea of Climate Action 100 Plus. We've been around for three years or so. 
And I would tell you, I've never seen as many investors working together in a data-driven, comprehensive way to address climate. So what did we do this week? And again, let's see if I could stay at a level that doesn't put our listeners to sleep because there's a lot of technical stuff here. Um, we basically said, okay, a lot of the companies we are working with pledge to get to a net zero future. By 2050, we'll be aligned with the Paris Agreement or we'll be at net zero carbon emissions. Um, and we want to look at what that means, how far they had really come and how far we as a group of investors need to go to make sure that the largest emitters bring their carbon emissions down. And we prepared a benchmark, highly thoughtful, done by highly credible consultants, looking at truly how each of the companies who we've working with, who we've targeted, who are the largest emitters, how are they really doing at setting short, medium, and long-term goals on bringing their carbon footprint down? Because remember, a company that tells us in 2050, they're gonna get it done and you know, clap their hands. If in fact, there's not a plan, a plan that starts tomorrow, if not yesterday, to get there, is probably not a good plan. So they need to have short, medium, and long-term goals. Uh, so we're not looking at, you know, the magic of 2050, as we know we'll probably have at any given company, three, four CEOs between now and 2015, they could all change their minds. So you want to build into that company's work, um, into their strategic planning, into the goals, into the uh, metrics that the corporate board set, that there be a short, medium and long-term greenhouse gas emission reduction target. Uh, and that there be a full decarbonization strategy and that they align their capital, the money they have to spend accordingly. And two more things, that they're transparent, that these companies disclose their climate risk and activities and that their boards address climate and what the risk is to the company. We looked at every one of the companies in climate action and we found out a lot of things. We found out that while we're making progress, there's a lot more to there's a lot longer of a way to go, that there's a journey ahead. Even many of the companies that committed to long-term targets haven't really gotten there at short and medium. It tells us what our work plan has to do for the next two years. While it wasn't as, you know, I'd love to send off the fireworks, everybody is there, that's perhaps not realistic, but we did want to show companies where they stack up against each other in their sector and overall and how long their journey is to go. And we wanted to make sure that each and every one of those 570 plus investors had the playing field, knew who, who was what and who was where. I think I think that's uh, really ties in nicely with the, uh, what we were talking about in the last podcast, which was the net zero investment framework. I don't know if it was by design that these things came out around the same time, but that idea that you can have net zero targets and you can just say well we're going to be net zero 2050 but it means absolutely diddly squat without a plan to get there and you know i've seen a lot of um, net zero targets both from companies and from investors that are kind of built more around wishful thinking than actual you know tangible stuff um and that uh you know certainly looking at the the breakdowns in the uh in the new benchmarking um, says that actually I was right in some of those uh, assumptions that, that, you know, it is kind of wishful thinking at the moment. But, 
you know, this is part of a journey that we're all on and we all need to, uh, you know, consider that. I, I mean, that's why this is so important because, I mean, the last episode we talked about how does a pension fund set a target to be net zero? Well, a key part of that is how do you relate to those companies you hold shares in and how they themselves set targets? And this benchmark is an absolute central part of, of the jigsaw here. Um, I think one of the pieces we discussed the previous podcast, this one today has brought into life where companies really are and it's transparency and it's absolute transparency. It's clarity of, of where companies are and are not. I was wondering though, I mean, I've, I've looked at the kind of he- some of the headline figures and I noticed that pretty much everyone has failed uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, failing to, to, to meet the benchmark. Now, how much of that is, you know, by design to, to, to make them more ambitious? How much of that is, um, that, you know, you thought that this was where the benchmark was going to be and everyone's kind of fallen short. And is there, um, is there a, perhaps a worry of saying, you know, well, you know, you're all crap, um, you know, and, and putting people off from that, from working with climate action? You know, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. So, David, that's a good question. It, the benchmark was designed to be audacious. It was designed to say, this is what excellence looks like. And we know that overnight, it's very hard to get to excellence. Uh, so, you know, I, I like your terminology. It's, it's highly non-investor-like in this one instance. Some of these uh, companies got diddly squat for a result. Um, it was not meant to humiliate or embarrass. In fact, we didn't release the names and chide them and give them an F or a D for failure. We said, this is where you have to go. We have got to get to a Paris aligned future. You have got to be transparent. Your boards have to take responsibility and you've got to show us in the short, medium and long term how you're going to bring your carbon footprint down. Um, and companies are on a journey. Uh, we want to push that journey fast. We want to make sure the results are clear and it is big changes, not small changes. I'm not altogether shocked that nobody has gotten there yet. I mean, we are talking about transforming the economy of the world. Frankly, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about a transportation sector that looks different, that will have no combustion engine vehicles in 10 years or 15 years. We're talking about no coal. Um, Part of the economy of the world has been driven off of coal. We're talking about transitioning one of the largest and most recalcitrant industries, the oil and gas industry, to be a different company, a different industry. Uh, And we got to move them quickly, but we can't imagine they're going to move overnight. So, but we're setting the goals high. Frankly, it is our only option. We cannot get the climate problem under control if we don't make real substantial changes. And some of them will be tough to do. On the other hand, it's a lot tougher to imagine the future of my kids if we don't act. I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think the benchmark is doing something more than than just baselining these 
167 odd companies, it's baseline in this transition decade. And I think if we had John Houchin here from the Swedish Pension Fund, who's a sort of very active engager as well, is it, he's been describing this transition decade where the key decisions are going to be made, the key investment decisions, the key sort of strategies put in place, that's all going to happen in these, these years ahead of us. And I think this is the benchmark for the major emitting companies in the key sectors that have got to transition, very difficult transition pathways, but possible. And this is providing a clarity for investors to understand that. The challenge we're going to have is how do we manage expectations? Because clearly we're going to engage, we're going to use our stewardship. Are all of these companies going to manage it personally? I don't think they are. And some are going to resist and some still resist. Whilst I think you are seeing others really trying to grapple with the complexity of what the transition really means. And how do you make that judgment? We understand where you are today. We've indicated where we want you to get to. And actually, we need to sort of see further steps from you along that journey because we believe you can move. And I think we've got some really important judgments around how we voted AGMs and on directors, etc. Yeah, I think one of the favourite things I've seen in the uh, uh, in the new benchmarking is um, capital expenditure. You know that you're actually we're actually now looking at is the capital expenditure uh, of particular companies aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement or the, the goals of a, a two degree or 1.5 degree world, however you want to, to, to define all of that. And, um, you know, going back to discussions that we've had on previous podcasts and, and privately with you, Adam, you know, this idea that we need to finance the transition and that investors really want to finance the transition and being able to lock that, you know, that, that um, disclosure into new financing and say, right, we want you to transition we're willing to give you the money for that but it needs to be all tied together and we need to see the plans the inputs and it's like right there's a load of green projects there that's what we're going to finance and i want that locking in and the the you know the the carbon heavy stuff um we, you know we're not interested in that and have this this kind of differentiation between financing and hopefully that will lead to different costs of capital for those different uh, kind of projects, um, because I think that's the next big, uh, the, the next big product category that we as asset owners are going to be providing. Well, to wrap it into a package as well, the investors also need to be involved with policy changes, and we are looking at that. I mean, in the end, carbon pollution costs us billions and billions of dollars a year, and we price it at zero in many parts of the world. So until we have a price on carbon, we don't have honest market signals to capital market players. Um, and the investors need to engage as well, not oppose anti-climate things um, and play a role in passing the right market signals to assure we're pricing carbon right so we get less of it, to assure there's much more transparency and disclosure. And that too is part of this package we're looking at. No, I think that's critical. The, the relationship between the company plans, the relationship between those plans and the regulations that need to change to enable them to achieve the plans, and equally the role that we can then play in financing them with those plans in the knowledge that the regulations got to change. So there's, there, is a, there is an alignment of interests to emerge through this. As we gain confidence that a company has a good plan, it's given the transparency that comes out well on a benchmark like this, that we've got that confidence that actually there's an aligned interest to work together to see some of the policy changes. And I think you can see that evolve down the path. 
but I still think we've got a little bit further to go. It didn't surprise me that the capital expenditure um, assessment on this was that hardly any companies met it, because I think where we are in engagement, we've been moving from, can you set a target? Can you capture, can that target capture all your emissions? Um, and we're now going to, can you have your short, medium term targets? And now we're moving to, well, what's your plan? Now can you demonstrate your capital expenditures align into the plan that's going to deliver against those targets? So my sense is another year, two years, you'll see that capital expenditure indicator given a lot of demonstration of alignment. And that will be because of the engagement that this enormous initiative is going to bring to bear. Yeah, and I think I think we need to bring the investment banks into that discussion as well, and do kind of a pincer movement on the uh, on the companies because you know that that discussion has to come from the equity and IR side, and it has to come from the corporate financing Claxon, side. IR. Yeah, sorry, investor relations, which is the uh, parts of companies that equity investors will tend to uh, tend to operate with. And for yeah. the record, that's six nil now, six times. Yeah, it's always me. I mean, I, I explained the uh, acronym Clarkson to uh, to Mindy off air, um, and it's literally always me that triggers it because um, I'm terrible. It's it's actually there as a check for me that I always forget. Um, but with that in mind, that's um, Jared just just come up and bang the gong. So that's the end of the first half. Uh, on climate action benchmarks we're going to move to rory's book of the week and we're going to come back to mindy for the second half in just a moment welcome to book of the week with rory sullivan is called Starve Acre by Andrew Michael Hurley and it is a work of fiction so departing from previous episodes of the book review and it's in some ways it's as much an ode to bookshops as it is an ode to a book in this case my local bookshop the Beckenham Bookshop um, and the randomness that that's involved in choosing any book I looked at it I was in the bookshop one day when we were allowed to do that and this was a, a book I chose I've no idea why why I chose it. It's a book about a topic that I've avoided ever since having children. It's about um, a child dying. It's about um, parents coping with grief. Um, And it's a kind of book that ever since having children, I've I've just stopped reading anything to do with harming children or children dying or parental grief. I've just found found unreadable. And and I've had the same with films and TV series and everything else. It's just there's a whole genre which used to provide <laughs> so much pleasure um, is, is actually now denied to me. Um, this book is a book about grief. It's about how I guess people cope and cope with and survive with 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 unimaginable loss. Um, it's about the the tricks individuals play on themselves in order to cope with that loss. Um, it's about the pressure that loss puts on on relationships. In this case, a, a husband and wife and and their family around them. Um, and it's also about how grief or or events can destroy a family. Um, it's it's a very sad book it is it is i mean i don't have the vocabulary to describe it other than that it's it's two people blundering blundering around the dark trying to hang on to something caring about each other but not able to to provide the emotional support the support they need i say this is a book i would never have read if it was forced on me 
Um, it's a book I've read by accident, perhaps thanks to the joy of bookshops, but it's one of the most beautiful books I've read for a long time. Recommended, but have a box of tissues alongside you. Okay, thanks very much for that, Rory. Uh, and without further ado, I want to really crack on with this because Mindy's got so much to say uh, on uh, this subject in particular. And that subject is, Mindy, what is it like being in America and working in RI and ESG? I would tell you the world has exploded almost overnight. Now, that's not to say we haven't seen continued growth, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit more on that. Um, but overnight, in the last two years, in the last three years, and frankly, in some ways, in the last month or two, the world of sustainability of ESG has just exploded in the most positive of ways. Five years ago, when we worked with large companies asking them to set a net zero climate target or a target for racial diversity at their board level or a target on how to use water and how to preserve it, um, Companies really did look at us like we were crazy. They'll do a little, they'll take a step in the right direction. But today, asking companies, large companies, publicly traded companies to set Paris aligned goals for the corporation, that's now happening. They're doing it, they're willing to do it, they're willing to change. Now, not happening easily, it's a journey, uh, but it's no longer a foreign language. And the same thing with investors investors asking them to align their portfolios because climate risk is a financial risk, not just acute environmental issue that maybe we think about on Sundays, uh, but a real risk. That's now happening across the board. And I will tell you in government in the United States, and then I'll come back and answer your question more specifically, you know, these issues are now valued. We've gone from an administration and this ought not to be about politics, that wanted to ignore the implications of racial crisis, of climate crisis, of the COVID crisis. Um, we've gone to an administration where we are addressing all of those things. And that means addressing them in the private sector as well as the public sector. So what we've seen just quickly, and um, over the years though, investing in ESG funds, in funds that look at climate and race and other issues, has just skyrocketed. Right now, uh, in a 2020 report, we saw that um, there are now $17 trillion in assets, one in $3 invested, going into professional management where investors are looking to screen out the bad actors as they define it. That's a 42% increase just since 2018. So, the growth is enormous in sustainable investing, and that's a good thing in my judgment. Yeah, so we've got the, uh, the, the, the two things. I mean, the growth in sustainable investing, I think it's, it's really interesting because we've seen a lot of marketing hype in that in Europe, and we've got the EU taxonomy uh, just coming into play, uh, certainly on continental Europe, and some UK players will be sticking to that. Um, you know, I think... As a, a portfolio manager myself, I'm a little bit skeptical sometimes about what I see as being marketed as ESG and sustainable and responsible. Is it really that, uh, you know, a few tweaks on a benchmark here and there, a non, you know, a, a, a benchmark that isn't uh, classified as sustainable, something like, you know, your um, MSCI, Morgan Stanley uh, indexes, 
uh, All Countries World Index, or the MSCI ACWI, as we call it. Escape that one, Adam. I can see you grinning at me. So the MSCI ACWI index is, is seen as a kind of global index. You know, tweaking that a little bit here and there doesn't give you a sustainable index or uh, an ESG-friendly index uh, in my book. Um, so, you know, there are some problems around that, but it's very nice that that's uh, on its way. I'd like to see everything responsible, you know, and all default pension funds in the UK, all 401k fund schemes and things like that in the US, you know, responsible should be the default. It shouldn't be, you know, some option that you have to tick a box on. Well, um, here's a couple of thoughts and I couldn't agree with you more. The first thing is, um, Trust but verify. If you want your funds, your investments in a screen fund, make sure you understand what that means. You know, there are terms like low carbon. Well, what is low carbon? I want no carbon, you know, no highly carbon intensive industries. Ask questions and learn where you can or read the fine print. Um, the second thing is issues like climate risk or financial risks. And we've got to get them out of the sense that people, investors or some think they're doing us a favor or it's a special category. Today, with everything we know, we need to look at climate risk the same way we look at currency risk or trade risk or tax risk, integrate it into every financial decision because it has a financial impact. I, I, I Absolutely. I, I mean, I fear this discussions of discussion of violent agreement here, but I just given the change that's happened in the US and that that sort of explosion you've talked about, and and but equally the the, the distance we've still got to go. I, I mean, do you think the new administration is going to sort of work with investors, organisations like Sirius and and the levers that don't necessarily require legislation, but are sort of already there that they could do through the SEC. Do you think you're going to see a very different dynamic where you've got an administration that understands the potential of the major pension funds in the US to really sort of drive an agenda in the interest of their beneficiaries as fiduciaries, but is really embedding this much more at the center of how they manage those assets in line with a sort of vision for the country? So you asked me if I think we're going to see a change. I will tell you, we have seen an enormous change in a mere six weeks. Uh, the SEC, for the last four years, tried to do everything they could to even roll back the concept that climate risk was a real financial risk. This SEC, who we have had a dozen conversations with already, who are bringing on leaders who believe in more disclosure, and I believe mandatory disclosure, they are ready to move. They have recently asked for comments on what their role should be, how far they should go on disclosure, uh, we will make the case, uh, as we have since the transition teams even started, that disclosure should no longer be voluntary. If it's a material risk, it's a material risk. And if we've got to disclose in a mandatory way tax risk and competitive risk and resource depletion risk and trade risk, we've got to disclose climate risk. And that's what I believe the SEC will do. The Federal Reserve Bank of, of the United States way behind what the European central banks have done. We have met with and talked with the Federal Reserve. One of the governors of the Federal Reserve spoke at the series conference this week uh, and put out a new paper on why climate risk has to be part of their mandate. Two years ago, that wasn't the case. Hmm. Now there are two special bodies within the Federal Reserve to look at climate risk and how to regulate banks 
because they understand climate risk is a systemic risk. And finally, the Treasury Secretary. I can assure you the last Treasury Secretary never uttered the words climate risk in his entire four years. Janet Yellen is talking about climate risk, is looking at pricing carbon. It'll be the first time the Treasury Secretary has an oversight group within her own office on climate risk. So um, we are rocking and rolling and certainly moving forward. So, I mean, it sounds like the, the climate genie's out the bottle. It, it's, it's integrated. It's across all the, the arms of government and, and of regulation. And that, I mean, that's just so encouraging to hear from, from, from this side of, 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 of the ocean. I, I, where's the pushback going to come from? I, I mean, you've seen a government come in that sort of come in with an agenda and they've, they've hit the ground running. It's quite clear. But there's going to be pushback. I mean, is that pushback still being seen as some of the corporate lobbying? And again, I sort of connect back to our earlier discussion where we do look through the, the climate action initiative of how companies lobby. Is that pushback coming there or, is, or hasn't it yet got organized enough? Is, is there a pushback? Uh, I wish I would say there wasn't. I wish I could say that, but um, you're asking the right questions, Adam. Uh, absolutely. The SEC is already hearing from different bodies of corporate leaders of trade associations that voluntary disclosure should be enough and we don't need mandatory disclosure, which of course we disagree with. Um, and I believe we will prevail on that question. 10 years ago, the SEC started looking at this, put in place some guidance on mandatory disclosure. It's time to lock it in, enforce against it. Um, I think a lot of the banks, even many of the banks who have said, they believe in acting on climate, do not want to see the Federal Reserve Bank regulating them more aggressively on systemic risk of climate. So uh, as we've been told by the administration, we should not assume this is going to be an easy road. On the other hand, I believe we're going to get there over the next four years, and our federal financial regulatory system will look very different as it relates to climate. It's interesting because that ties in um, with what our last guest, Sandy Boss, was talking about. Um, and she mentioned that uh, coming from her prior job uh, in the Prudential Regulatory Authority at the Bank of England, she thinks that, you know, the, the, the incorporation of um, climate uh, change into capital adequacy requirements in banks is probably going to be the single big kicker for moving everything. And it's going to happen really, really quickly because the banks are working on a two to three year time period in terms of, you know, financing companies and, and, and churning that finance. You know, once that starts rolling off and you suddenly have to say, well, you know, you've got X, Y and Z assets, we can't finance that. We saw a kind of tip of the iceberg, I think, this week with um, AXA in, the, uh, in Europe refusing to insure RWE on the basis that RWE's coal exposure as a whole was too large for their risk profiles and they just didn't want to touch it, despite the fact that they're transitioning and they've got new technologies and, and, and some element of clean. Um, that we're, we're seeing that change happen now. And... This is a part of what we've discussed in previous podcasts. You know, we've always looked at the equity markets. What's the equity market doing? What the What is the equity market saying? And now what we're seeing is it's debt, it's banks, it's insurers. That's what's really going to pinch. Because if I divest, it doesn't matter. 
It genuinely doesn't matter. You know, I, I just sell my stocks to someone that doesn't care. You know, the whole, the whole concept of divesting is based around the idea that there's someone on the other side that will just take your stock. Correct. You know, it's not, it's not like you, I, you go back and you get a refund from, you know, Shell <laughs> or BP. It's not how it works. But with financing, that's entirely different. You have to be able to, to, to get that new finance. With insurance, it's entirely different. You have to get that new insurance. So I think we're, we're interesting moving on to there. Now, we, we've talked a lot about climate this uh, episode so far. Um, you know, you, you did mention some other things uh, before, um, Mindy. Um, I think that the US uh, is ahead of where Europe and the UK is on investment issues that aren't climate. You know, we're, we're a bit obsessed with climate in Europe at the moment, it has to be said. Um, but obviously last uh, summer you had um, the, the George Floyd uh, killing uh, at the hands of police officers, you know, this huge explosion in, in uh, uh, resurgence in the Black Lives Matter uh, campaigns, uh, lots of kind of defund the police protests. So there's an awful lot of, of social action, a lot of diversity things that, that are happening in the US in, in a lot greater way than are happening in Europe. And I was wondering how that, you know, kind of how you see that playing out and how you interact with that um, in, uh, in the States? Well, certainly beyond the investor and corporate communities, and I'll come right back to that, issues of race and diversity have come to the forefront and appropriately so. I mean, there is just no question in every part of our society, people are treated differently and often based on the color of their skin. And I could think of nothing more abhorrent. Um, but what we're also seeing is companies and investors looking at those issues. And like climate, they're looking at it not only as a social and moral issue, which it is and they should, but as a financial issue. Companies are realizing if their boards of directors don't look like the rest of the economy, if everybody is from Harvard and Stanford, wonderful institutions or Oxford, um, but rather than representing the real interests of the real world and real people, that we lose a beat, we miss a beat. The same thing for investors. Investors are calling for diverse boards and they're not calling for diversity on boards of directors only because it's right, but it is, but because they believe it will have a financial impact on the management, on the well-being, on the goal setting, on where corporations are going. And so the number of shareholder proposals around board diversity, around how people are paid and treated in the workplace, um, has grown along with climate proposals. And again, not only because they happen to be on the front page of the newspapers, which they are, and that's good, but because they have a direct financial impact. Yeah, I could, couldn't agree with that uh, any, any more, Mindy. Um, and it's like you said that it's not just some woke liberal issue. I mean, it, it kind of is, but it's not just that. If you've got all these different diverse groups and you're going to one group, which is generally white men and you're saying right we're only going to look at you know the high end of the talent pool in that particular group and you know white women aren't there black women black men indian chinese you know however you want to do it we're just not going to look at those talent pools well you're missing a massive massive opportunity and at the end of the day as an investor i want to maximize the talent that i have you know and and i don't care what pool you get it from you know, 
But for some reason, we only pick, pick it from one pool. Um, and it's hard to know how to how to change those minds because to some extent it's like it's like the old adage that you know an IT manager never got fired for uh, for hiring IBM that's the old the old adage you know I think you know an HR manager never gets fired for hiring a white guy from Harvard that that was always the case and you know if everyone has that same background you either have to try and fit into that background. And I think that's one of the problems is that individuals have this sense that they have to almost tone down or entirely lose their authenticity and what makes them unique to try and fit in rather than the organizations in which they move to taking the best of their own personal qualities and incorporating that into the business, which is, I think, how it should be. I don't know. I'm 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 wishing on uh, Adam Mindy. Any, any comments on, on that? Look, if you're building a Fortune 500 company and everybody on your board is a white male and 65 years old or over, you no longer represent the economy. You don't represent the world. You don't know what people are thinking. You don't know how they're acting. The world is growing more diverse in the United States. At some point in 20, 30 years, will be more black and brown skinned people than white people, uh, they need to be incorporated. They are part of our economy and they need to be on the same corporate boards that the white males are on. Uh, and we will lose as an economy if we don't understand the needs and wishes of Main Street rather than just Wall Street. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, it's, it's also, yes, it's exposing yourself to the full breadth of the talent pool, but I don't think we should be shy. I mean, it's just right. I, I mean, yeah. fundamentally, it's just right and it's wrong to steer it the other way. And and the other thing really is the company's social license. So, I mean, your license will be gone. And, and this is one of the ways in which companies lose that social license if they aren't in touch with that reality of societal expectations. So I, I, I do think that something from a horrific event has triggered something. I mean, we walk around the streets here in Edinburgh, there's Black Lives Matter signs in the windows here, there's Justice for George, George Floyd signs in the windows in, in the houses around here, and you see that. And over the past past couple of weeks, we've been dealing with a tragedy here where a, a, a young female reporter was abducted and then murdered. And again, that sort of brought back that whole Me Too movement and challenging us just on the sort of the, the male violence that there is in society and male anger. And I, I think it's actually this time it's really posed questions to men to think about what they need to do um, a lot more even. And, and I think we're going to be challenged repeatedly. So how this connects with us as investors, responsible investors, as well as how this connects with us as individuals within organisations is going to be a key part, I think, of all of our lives. Yeah, I, th I think that the um, with, without wanting to sound too hammy, you know, that the, the, the patriarchal society structure that we have um impacts men in a negative way as much as it impacts other groups because you know there's a standard that you're held to as a man that you should be this 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 and this and if you fall outside of that um then you're you know you're unworthy um and the fact that these a lot of these traditional uh, male jobs you know in manufacturing and things are going you know I think there's, there's, to some extent, and this is not making excuses uh, by any means, but, you know, men don't know where, a lot of men don't know where they should fit in the world anymore. That, we, you know, we hold on to these old standards that are impossible to uh, achieve. 
Uh, and that leads to anger. That leads to, you know, great rates of male suicide. Um, that increase, you know, leads to, to violence. And, you know, violence against other men, violence against women. Um, you know, they, they, it's difficult to know how to uh, alter that without, you know, a, a complete change in uh, how we approach that as a society. But yeah, I, this is going way off uh, off the the rails of, of investment. But it's relevant to investment, of course, it is. So if we bring it back very directly to companies and investment, um, what we know today is that people want to work for mission driven companies, for companies that are focused on more than short short quarterly earnings. That they want to be part of something bigger. Certainly, the youth, the young people going to work today. Every company is competing for the best and the brightest, and that should be defined broadly. But companies, if they want to keep their standing, if they want to make money, if they want investors to keep investing in them, they've got to focus on issues that are beyond short-term earnings. Consumers are going to buy from companies who have more of a mission. Young people are want to work for companies. Present employees will be more motivated. And investors will see that in terms of the strength of the companies. So it, it may have been a political discussion for many of us for years. It is turning into a financial discussion quickly uh, and right now. And what a wonderful note to end on. Um, Mindy, um, thank you so much for, uh, for, for coming on board for this uh, episode. We've overrun and overrun, but, you know, it's been so such a joy to, uh, to be able to have you on and uh, listen to your, your views and your story. Uh, Mindy, for our, um, for our listeners that, that uh, maybe don't know uh, who you are immediately, where can we find you online? Uh, are you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? Can our people uh, follow you at all? Uh, you've got all of the normal things. So series, www.series.com. Uh, I am on Twitter. I am on LinkedIn. Uh, and I'll look forward to connecting. But Great. go to our website. You'll get everything you need. Well, I will, I will include your uh, details for your Twitter and your LinkedIn in the program notes Great. so people have access to that. So thanks again. Adam, thank you very much for your time. I know you're also very busy this week again with the, the CA100 stuff. And uh, I'm going to call it a day. So, uh, yeah, thank you to our listeners. Again, uh, subscribe, leave us a review, and um, recommend us to your friends. And I'll leave it there. Thank you for your time. Goodbye. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>